Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hi, everyone. This is Jana Baker, shareholder with Ogletree Deacons in the Dallas office, and I have with me again today the pleasure of chatting with Jim Paul in our St. Louis office. He's a shareholder there. Jim is the head of our disability access group and has agreed to join me for take two in our series on the Americans with Disabilities Act and the non-traditional worker. You may recall in part one, we talked about temporary workers and nurse staffing and the healthcare industry and how that impacts their rights under the ADA. And today we're going to talk about something a little bit similar, but still different, and that is volunteers and student interns, um, including medical and nurse, nursing residents. And so, Jim, uh, tell me, how are these types of individuals, the volunteer, the intern, and the resident, different from the temporary workers and staff agency workers that we talked about in our last podcast? Sure, that's a great question. And so if uh, if you listen to our part, part one and you survived our part one podcast in this series, uh, we talked a lot about how to figure out whose employee a, a temp or a seasonal worker um, is. Is it the staffing agency's employee? Is it the hospital's employee? Or is it potentially a situation where there's a joint employer relationship and that worker is actually an employee of both uh, both organizations, both companies? And so with regard to volunteers, which are uh, you know historical foundation of a lot of hospitals and a lot of uh, healthcare providers uh, to have volunteers in the organization, in the hospitals, helping out in uh, various ways, or if it's a situation of an intern or medical resident, uh, obviously we could have students from all, uh, all studies, whether it's uh, medicine, nursing, physical therapy, respiratory therapists, uh, x-ray techs, you name it, uh, CNAs. We could have students that are doing you know, their practical experience rounds in our hospitals. And so when we're dealing with those volunteers who are generally unpaid, right, they're donating their time uh, for charitable purposes uh, to work in the hospital to help out uh, with patients and families or however else they can uh, assist around the hospital or around the clinic. And then we also have students uh, in whatever capacity that are getting practical experience and, and presumably school credit as well. So with the volunteers, they're usually not getting paid. So they're not going to be employees, otherwise we have to pay them. For the interns and uh, medical residents, that's sometimes a hybrid situation. Uh, they may be paid or, or not, uh, or they may be partially paid. They may be funded by grants. They may be funded by their educational institutions, or you as the hospital or uh, healthcare provider may be paying a stipend or paying partially paying for that student intern or that medical resident's work, right? Or they may be directly hired as employees. Uh, we, we've seen that the, these relationships can take many different forms. But long story short, 
these individuals are usually not employees, at least in the traditional sense, uh, and they may or may not be students uh, and be enrolled with an educational institution of some kind. And so we have to figure out from an ADA, disability discrimination or disability access perspective, which category they fall in and what our obligations or someone's obligations, maybe the school's obligations are to this individual. It really, we need to step back and kind of really define what the person is and who, who may be responsible for providing some type of accommodation for a disability. That sounds very complicated and confusing to me in terms of deciding, trying to figure out with all these hybrid situations where they fall. So how does the ADA look at these types of different scenarios? Sure. Yes, it's, it's complicated for sure, as everything, right? And our answer, our, our traditional answer for a lot of this, well, it depends. It depends on a lot of factors and it can be a somewhat complex analysis. Add to that, there's a lot of legal uncertainty for some of these relationships. So it's interesting, the ADA, the federal law, and most similar state laws have provisions to protect disabled employees, as well as disabled citizens, such as patients, guests, customers, you know, third parties that are using the services, that are getting treatment, that are visiting our facilities. So we usually have federal and or state obligations to both employees and those visitors or patients that we're treating. It's very unclear, however, and usually undefined. Certainly it is under federal law. State laws may try or attempt to cover this third category of interns or volunteers that really aren't guests or patients, and they're not employees either, not in the traditional employment law sense. Uh, because otherwise we'd have to pay them wages. Uh, and so they kind of fall out of and, and fall in somewhat of a black hole or, you know, a, a crack between employees and patients, guests, customers, or others that are visiting our hospitals. And so we got to figure out if they truly don't matter <laughs> as far as the law's uh, coverage or do they fit more under the employee version of the ADA or more under the public accommodation and patient or family member prong of the ADA? And so sometimes it's hard to figure out which of those they better fit in. And they may fit, like I said, into this donut hole or black hole of a third category. And it may be that there is no coverage uh, or no rights, for instance, that a volunteer would have. That, of course, doesn't mean that we shouldn't address whatever concerns or needs that right. person has. Right, Jana? Right. And so a lot of this, it sounds like it comes down to very similar to the staffing agency concept where it behooves the hospital or healthcare organization. And, the, and these these are fundamentally business relationships, right? So they've got a relationship with perhaps either a public or private university in the case of a resident or you know, with some volunteer organization. And so really, it sounds like we might approach it the same way in terms of we've got to figure out what accommodations to offer and how to navigate that with these other entities. Would you agree with that? And what's your recommendation generally on accommodating these disabilities that a, that a volunteer or a resident might present? Absolutely. I mean, look, look as a hospital or a healthcare provider, 
presumably we want to make our services accessible to everybody, no matter what their exact legal classification is or whether a law absolutely requires it. First of all, we don't want to create an unsafe situation where someone might get injured. And we certainly don't want to uh, have anybody feel like they're left out or excluded because there is not proper access for them due to a disability that they may have. And add to that, Whenever we are welcoming and giving experience, practical, actual experience to students or interns in whatever field they're studying, whether it be uh, nursing or medicine or physical therapy, we are doing that as a service to the students and to the community and to the educational institutions that those students are enrolled in. Uh, And we're helping them get that practical experience, right, so that they can go through their formal education and then get whatever certifications, licenses, and you know qualifications that they need to actually practice whatever healthcare uh, field they're uh, that they're studying. And so we not only do we want to do that generally from a community standpoint and you know the, the greater good as as a healthcare organization in the community, but we need to coordinate with the educational institution that these interns are actually enrolled in as students. And so whether we have a legal obligation or the school does, and you know, there are other laws that apply directly to educational institutions of, of higher education or otherwise, and the ADA applies to schools and educational institutions. And so the school may have legal obligations, and therefore you as the hospital or healthcare provider kind of as a third party have to work and coordinate with the school to make sure that the students, the interns, the medical residents are able to get their practical experience to do the work that they need to do for purposes of their studies and for uh, you know getting the experience that they need. And so your facilities in the hospital or in the clinic need to be accessible and we need to help that student out, help that school educational institution out to make sure that everybody's getting what they they need to and they deserve, of course, in a safe and effective manner through that internship uh, program and relationship. Well, that makes a whole lot of sense. Can you um, perhaps give us some examples, Jim, of the types of accommodation requests you've seen that might come into play, and I know this works in the employee context, but I just want to kind of visualize how it plays out, for example, with a volunteer coming onto the property. Let's start with uh, service animals, and I know we talked about this in part one. Uh, I've had a few instances where a, a temporary staffing agency worker you know, reported to work or came to work at a hospital with a service animal and unexpectedly and unplanned, which caused some issues. Uh, We talked about that last time. Well, a volunteer or a student intern or a medical resident might also need a service animal uh, to function, to get around mobility-wise or because they're visually impaired or hearing impaired or potentially uh, because they have, uh, you know, mental illness or uh, emotional needs where they may need that animal with them for some or all of their time in the hospital or in your facility. And so, again, 
So like a rat, so like an emotional yeah, we support did. rat. Yeah, just a couple <laughs> days ago, we had a question from a, a client that an employee was requesting an emotional support rat. I, I'm not sure a, a rat of any uh, of any training in a hospital is a good idea, but that could certainly be uh, requested or be a part of this analysis. But whether it's a rat or a dog, you have to understand, again, if it's a student, they may have a right to their service animal for purposes of their educational studies. And if part of their educational studies is in your hospital or in your clinic, then we may have to work with the school to ensure that that student is getting the practical experience that they need uh, and using the service animal. So just be aware of that, even though it's not your employee, even though that intern is obviously not a patient where you would have to give access to the patient with a service animal, we might have to work with that intern uh, or uh, medical resident with regard to that need. Uh, and a volunteer, I've never had a situation where a hospital volunteer, unpaid volunteer needed a service animal, but I could easily see it happening. And again, it may not be that you have a legal duty to grant access because they're not a patient, they're not seeking medical treatment where we would obviously have to discuss or give access to that patient with a service animal. And they're not an employee that can formally request a reasonable accommodation of a service animal, but presuming that the volunteer wants to do some uh, service for the hospital and we want the volunteer to help and assist, then maybe it's worth exploring or uh, it's certainly worth exploring to see whether it's feasible to have that service animal. So that's one example. Another one that I have had both with volunteers and with medical residents is having deaf interpreters. And so if a medical student, a nursing student, or some other student intern is deaf and uses sign language, just like they need an interpreter during their classes or for purposes of their educational work, they may need an interpreter for some or all parts of their practical experience or their internship. Then we are kind of thrown into a situation where we're more like an employer and we have to accommodate potentially that interp interpreter need. And it may not be that we that, that intern or medical resident needs an interpreter 24-7 or you know, full-time during their shift or every day, but for certain interactions and certain discussions, certainly orientation or training, and you know, certainly if the medical intern or medical resident has in-depth discussions with other healthcare providers, with doctors in the hospital, or is interacting with patients and needs to communicate, then an interpreter may be required. And we're gonna to have to explore that. Again, working with the school usually, uh, unless the intern or the medical resident is an actual employee, in which case we can't lean on or don't have to lean on the school. We, have, we would have an obligation, the hospital would have an obligation as an employer to that intern or that medical resident uh, to provide or at least explore how much in interpreting service uh, support needs to be given to that individual, that medical resident or intern. Uh, and then the third one uh, that's come up for all of us, uh, not only in the flu vaccination context for the last 10 years or so in a lot of hospitals, but now more recently with COVID-19 vaccinations. It is quite foreseeable. I haven't yet had, and Jenna, I don't know if you have, had a medical, a medical resident or student intern issue with COVID vaccination or a volunteer. 
Yeah, I actually have. So I think this is coming up quite a bit. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so you know, just like with flu vaccines, so anytime if there's mandatory flu vaccine for employees in a hospital, which a lot of hospitals have, have gone to mandatory flu vaccination policies in the last several years, obviously, if you have a volunteer, a student intern, a medical resident that's coming into the facility every day and interacting with employees and patients, the rationale or the need for that individual to be vaccinated is the same as it would be for an actual regular employee. And so you as a hospital healthcare provider may want to or need to mandate that vaccination, again, whether it's uh, influenza vaccination or now COVID-19 vaccination. And that volunteer, that student intern, that medical resident may or may not have employee rights to request a medical or religious exemption from vaccination. But if they raise that, then you're gonna to need to explore one, whether that's legally required of you because you're acting as an employer or quasi-employer, or because the school or other entity that does actually employ that individual uh, has obligations to accommodate medical and religious issues with regard to vaccinations. And so you're going to have to explore that very similar to how you would explore it with employees uh, and with vendors, customers, other third parties. Again, just going back to our part one, talking about staffing agency workers, they're employees at least of one of the organizations, either the staffing agency or the hospital or both. And they would have a right to object and ask for an exemption from vaccination. And then one or both of those entities, the staffing agency or the hospital, is going to need to go through the reasonable accommodation process. And we need to at least explore that. Uh, so what was your situation, Jana? Well, it was very similar. And of course, this comes up only in the situation where you have a mandatory vaccine program. Some hospitals are still optional, in which case that's not going to be an issue. But where you have a mandatory program, and it, most do have that for influenza, many do not yet for COVID-19. But if you do require it, then yes, we had a, a nursing resident, for example, who wanted to be exempted from the vaccine. You know, at the end of the day, we had to figure out somebody's got to address the issue, whether it's the university where the resident was working at the time or whether it's the hospital in question, somebody had to decide whether or not that employee or not employee, but whether that resident could be accommodated or not. And of course, you know, in that instance, all everybody coming onto the property, they were except for patients, they were requiring vaccinations. So they had to at least navigate that with respect to the organization that they were affiliating with for these residents and, and try to figure out a solution. And, and of course, they're looking at, you know, where is the resident going to be in the facilities? What kind of tasks are they going to be performing? Who are they going to be interacting with? What's the nature? Why can't they get the vaccine and evaluate it just like they would anyway? So it was somewhat hard to avoid having to jump into that analysis and just say, nope, we can't have that resident at all. Um, because I really didn't promote a good working environment for that particular hospital in that situation. So I, I agree that they oftentimes have to approach it just like they would a staffing agency and have a conversation about it. Um, so in the end, it seems like there's there's more similarities than we realized in these types of alternative 
workers, we'll call them, with the residents and the volunteers. There's a lot more similarities um, to temporary workers, for example, even though we know that they're not traditional employees and determining how to accommodate them. Right. Yeah. So on the one hand, it's easy because we may have to go through or we may want to go through our normal process for um, employees or patients, right? Even though these these d- different workers or interns or volunteers fall in a different category, but it also becomes potentially a community relations or a client relations issue, right? So if we're working with these schools and educational institutions to provide their students with great experience, we want to help that school out because they're, you know, they're providing the interns and we know we're doing that as a service, both for the community and for the school. We may also be doing it or a hospital may be doing it for recruiting purposes, right? And and being able to give people, uh, you know, experience, but then also use those those groups of interns as a potential hiring source. For lack of a better term, we want to keep both the schools and the interns happy and, and presumably the volunteers happy, and we want to keep our workplaces safe. So even though we might have a legal defense that, hey, the ADA or a state law doesn't technically apply to a volunteer or a student intern, an unpaid intern, we may want to or need to, in effect, <laughs> deal with the situation. And the good news is, is that you already have, um, or at least you did after part one of our <laughs> of our podcast uh, discussion, you have a system in place to receive and you know work through those requests for accommodations. Again, whether it's you know um, a volunteer or intern in a wheelchair or with uh, visual or hearing impairments or some other condition. We already have a process in place to start the discussion and figure out what is a good solution to the problem of, you know, what will it take, what needs to be altered or uh, done differently to allow this person to safely and effectively perform whatever service or to get whatever experience that they're seeking to get in our hospital. And that may even require, I'll say this last thing, it may even require altering their rotation within the facility. So for example, if there's a vulnerable patient population and they can't get a particular vaccine, they may not be able to service or learn from on their rotation that particular department. And so we may have to make some changes in their program and figure out a way to, to get around that. Jim, you know, thank you so much for joining me again and sharing all of your insight. It's been extremely useful. And this is an interesting topic. It does come up quite a bit. And so I think the bottom line is for healthcare employers and organizations just to be mindful of these issues when setting up an internship program, volunteer programs, dealing with your residents, that it is a little trickier than it might seem at first blush. Um, And certainly, please reach out to Jim Ball for any and all questions on that topic. Um, Thank you again for joining us for this Final part two in our series on the ADA and the non-traditional worker. Good luck, everybody. And we definitely want to hear from you, even if it's with ideas for future podcasts or other questions or issues that you want some guidance on, feel free to reach out. But otherwise, have a great day. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. 
please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.